Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 28. It wasn't until after midnight Barlow time that the festivities started winding down and enough people filtered out of the square that I could more or less walk around freely. Giant floodlights mounted on surrounding buildings had been switched on, turning the square all bright and stark. Trash littered the ground like a bomb had gone off and the stink of urine was everywhere. A certain exhausted, bleary-eyed quality possessed by the remaining revelers wandering quietly about lent to the scene the ghostly quality of armistice upon no man's land. There were still plenty of guards on duty, but for once that was a good thing. There might yet have been 50,000 people stumbling about the square and outlying streets, many of whom were still quite drunk. There were also a few crowds of young rowdies here and there that looked a lot like street gangs itching to mix it up. But the blue forces were not shy with their stun sticks, and things were fairly peaceful accordingly. That outdoor soup kitchen for the workers was open once more. I figured if I helped clean up, I might get another meal, so I gathered trash again in and around the southeast corner and just watched the crowd. It was nearly two hours after this, as I stood in line for my breakfast and coffee, that I spied Hannah Smith across the square as she stood and scanned the area with her characteristic insectoid attentiveness. She had on dark, nondescript coveralls, like cold gear from somewhere else, along with a large pack and rugged boots. I could see no weapons, but that meant nothing. If she was here, small and the rest of them were. They would be staking out the appointed corner, watching for an ambush, alert for suspicious characters. A modest Naban breakfast, far less impressive than the commissioner's chef had been able to produce, but no less welcome at this point, was being served to the work crews. The litter detail I'd taken upon myself had been noticed, though I did my mumbling routine whenever anyone asked for details, friendly or otherwise. I eventually got a nod from the catering boss after a sanitation crew leader had pointed me out, and I queued up for chow. I took a tray, cup, and spork, waited for my turn, and was rewarded with a heap of vegetable protein links, a sticky, sweetened mound of mushy grains mixed with what might have been tiny pasta pearls, and another tall cup of that hot, bitter coffee stuff. After this... I wandered right past Smith, and she never saw me. Just another dirty man shuffling and mumbling to himself. Those load bots from the day before had been brought in again, maybe to haul out the bags of trash, and were parked along the corner. People were sitting on the lifter plates and wide peds of the machines, chatting, 
nursing hangovers, staring at the bleakness of the artificial day. I settled myself there, too, just waiting. But then there was Alan Small, leaning against a stack of pallets. He wore similar coveralls as Smith's, but also a hooded jacket and some dark glasses. He checked a device in his hand and muttered something I couldn't hear into a pickup I couldn't see. I shuffled over and squatted near. He glanced down at my filthy, smelly form with exasperated disgust and faced away. Nothing yet, he whispered to his unseen companions. I ate quickly now, figuring food might be scarce in the coming hours, and it was fun to let him look stupid for a bit. After three minutes, I stood, dropped my empty plate in the trash bin, and shambled near him once more. He saw and probably smelled me there next to him without turning his head and just cursed quietly. No, no problem, he whispered to an inquiry in his ear. I think we have a no-show. Okay, I'm calling it. Regroup at the car, slowly now. He waited for all the required acknowledgments, then started off himself. I let him get four paces away. Why, Mr. Small, as I live and breathe. He stopped and jumped a little at the exact same time, like he'd been hit with an electric shock. Indeed, as he turned around, his face looked like he had. He studied me carefully now. A second. Two seconds. And then he tensed again. Ejock? The emotions that played over his face were like the ripples in a puddle under heavy rain. Shock, confusion, suspicion, anger, fear. He stared like I'd fallen out of the sky, appropriately enough, furrowing his brow and squinting in calculation and fast assessment. His hand had moved behind him, as if reaching for something that could ruin my day. Well, he spoke after long moments, studying me like a man watches a small, strange animal, wondering if it's even half as harmless as it seems. This is a surprise. To his companions, he muttered, Contact. Resume positions. Sorry to give you a start, I replied. Chilly evening, huh? I spoke with forced ease, stepping near and sipping coffee. His eyes were narrow and his brow carved with concentration, but his voice was measured and clear. I find it bracing. Are you alone? I finished the cup in a single long swallow, then tossed it back at the trash bin. I missed. Oh, sure. He gave me a tight smile and seemed to relax. Even his errant hand came back into view, empty. I'm not often at a loss for words, Ejok. Oh, I believe that. But you've managed to flummox me. He opened his hands in complete confusion. How? By this point, Brock Hockner had sidled up through the milling crowd. He stood off a few meters and looked at me with nothing like friendliness, a hand in one pocket of his suit. Like Small and Smith, who now stepped up behind her boss, the big man wore the same off-world cold gear. 
That's not a conversation for this place, is it? More assessing. No, it's not. Your transport off-planet is Griselda? It's still parked above and not yet seized? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And no, it's not. And you do have return reservations. He breathed through his nose. You knew. I shrugged and managed a weak smile, purposely glancing at the two visible companions to let them know I saw them there. That failed to impress, but it made me feel better. As I was doing that, Alan Small stepped up to my face in one fluid movement. If he'd had a knife in his hand, he could have killed me as I blinked in surprise. Instead, he hissed through his teeth, his eyes holding knives enough. Who do you work for? Involuntarily, I stepped back and then squared my gaze. I tried to keep my voice level, matching his gravitas as best I could. You wouldn't believe me if I told you. And that was the truth. I could swear to him that I was just a gunner and steward on Griselda until my tongue grew tired, and he'd never go for it. He'd never allow it. Not after this shock. It was simply impossible, so I let it be such. I was somebody's deep cover agent now, and he'd be guessing my motives and moves three steps ahead. But if I only ever took one at a time, he'd always be guessing wrong. Seemed like a plan anyway, so I resumed that smile and just let him stew. His eyes narrowed as he played over the variables for one last very long moment, and then his face and tone morphed into that same variety of bland charm he'd invariably and so perfectly supplied back on the ship. So, shall we parley? I nodded and looked at his flunkies. They hadn't relaxed a bit, watching me and the crowd with equal professionalism. They were really good, which was no comfort at all. Sure, why not? Now I know you have a job to do here, and I suspect it's unfinished, and I suspect I know why. I'm here to help you with that, but first, you need to help me. Two people from the ship, one of them the captain, are being held down here in the city. We need to free them. Your little yacht is in the hands of the Blues, so that only leaves Griselda if you want to get out of here. And I suspect you do. He chuckled and shook his head in wonder, or mock wonder, or just for effect, I don't know. It didn't matter, and I wasn't done. Now, you probably bought round-trip tickets as a cover, or even as a fail-safe in case Plan A fell through. Since it has, I can only commend your attention to detail. Griselda has a place for you all, but it's not leaving without its crew. Help me free them, and we'll all go together. What about transport up to orbit? That's in the works. I'll hear more soon. It represents a delay, but a fortuitous one, since Griselda is dealing with some delays of its own right now. We'll have to time it carefully, but we can do this. Are you in? That depends. Regarding my unfinished business? I'd been chattering quickly up until then. I'd rehearsed the offer in my head, to be honest. But I paused now. 
All I had on this part of things were some loose deductions. Hardly more than speculation, really, which was not much in the way of currency for buying a cagey, likely dangerous man's interest, let alone his trust. But there are the cards you have, and then there's the way you play them. I decided to play them big. I'm tempted to say one deal at a time, I replied with a shrug. Once they're free, we renegotiate. But that would be a mistake, he countered, matching my feigned coolness. I agree. You could walk away now, and your situation would be no worse off, while mine would be no better. Since I reached out to you, I'm clearly not satisfied with my situation, so I'd end up the loser, and it could be such a useful partnership. Elaborate, please. He treated me to one of his great smiles. Help me get them away from the seculars, and I'll help you find what you're looking for. After it's retrieved, we all leave. And that's it? That's all you want? Now why do I have doubts? Perhaps you're jaded by life. He bore a knowing smirk, more for effect, of course, part of the negotiation process. Whatever he was after... It had enough value to warrant the operation to begin with, and this was no minor job, all things considered. My magical appearance down here wouldn't exactly help my case, should I act as indifferent to his private business as I actually felt. Certainly, he was smart enough to see the logic in freeing the captain of the only ship currently in system, but that wouldn't explain my ability to track him down, nor my implied knowledge of his business. It was all guesswork, but he'd never believe it. Make me an offer, I put out there. He looked away, considering it, or pretending to. Fifty-fifty? Oh, generous, you're too kind. Is that sarcasm? Hardly becoming, Ejok. I was tired of this place, of these people, of the endless wheels... I sighed in frustration. It's too generous. It tells me you aren't serious. If I agreed, you'd have to renege, which would mean a bad ending for me. Now, I really hate this sort of crap, so here's the only deal you're going to get, whether you trust it or not. We free them. I help you. We all leave. I make no claim to your property. It's yours. End of story. I don't care about your mission here. It's none of my business. Then why do you know so much about it? Do I? Maybe I'm just bluffing. Maybe you aren't as opaque as you think you are. You're used to smiling and lying and people swallowing every bit of it. But you aren't the first man I've met with an agenda, Mr. Small. Are we doing this or not? He studied me. It had to be ten seconds or more, that grin fading the whole time as he calculated his risks and possible gains. But then he recovered it with a flash. Well, time and tide, as they say. He stepped back and swept his arm out in a friendly, inviting manner, indicating the way to go, holding with ease that simple, flawless, manufactured smile that so outstripped my own real one. You were here for the festivities last night? He posed amiably as we strolled. Smith and Hockner were following along as well, 
though I lost sight of them in the crowd by the time we'd gone ten paces. Oh yes, and I dare say they're just warming up, so to speak. His smile became a low chortle over that. <laughs> yes, so to speak. The giggle didn't fade, though. Instead, he kept laughing, lowly, even embarrassedly, hiding his mouth and glancing at me with what anyone anywhere would have taken for conviviality. At length, his mirth became even bigger, and he slapped me on the shoulders as we walked out of the square, trailed by his crew, both seen and unseen, tired soldiers, preoccupied zealots, and bleary-eyed citizens alike threw us nary a glance. For a new day was approaching, and it was a whole new world. You have an impressive way of challenging expertise, Mathers accused, his droll tone silent to all but me in the alleyway. But I'm told it can be done, though not more than once. They'll figure it out and make new rules to prevent such, uh, confusion again. God save us from reactionary middle managers. I spoke quietly, glancing back at Small and his people, who stood around our appropriated military air car. Hannah Smith caught me watching them and deliberately walked over. Once is enough, I told the man on the line. If it doesn't work the first time, a second try won't help. Right, expect my call in a few. He cut the line and I turned to her. The short woman looked at me with a complete lack of emotion as she pulled a secular cold gear uniform over her dark tunic. It had been made for a large man, and she was small enough even yet, with all the clothing underneath, that it looked like a storage sack she was climbing into. If you could have made a call like that before without us, then why didn't you? I think it was the first time since I'd met her that she said anything directly to me that didn't constitute a menu choice. I shrugged. Timing. That was a load, and she knew it, but it was less confrontational than telling her to shut up and do her job. She seemed to know that, too, and let it slide. Small eyed the exchange, such as it was, and also had no comment. In point of fact, the quiet was oddly awkward in that dark back alley. Just a narrow gulf, it was fenced on both sides between two separate facilities. Hap Larendell, their pilot, and driver apparently, had backed the car slowly in from the street, because the space was too tight for a drop landing. We couldn't even walk around it, in fact, and had to step up onto the running boards on both sides just to get by. One of the factories was back at work, steam wafting into the dark sky from several vents. It had no windows on this side and no exterior lights, which had made this particular alley an easy choice. The air car bore the paint job and markings of the blues, but had had an electronic medical pass tracer installed under the hood that Smith, with her slender fingers, deftly removed. Carmi and Dell's captors needed to be unsure of the secular military branch to which we belonged. If we showed up in the pre-dawn with an air car that was obviously from the medical pool, we'd need a medical-type excuse, 
which they could easily double-check. Without such a pass-tracer device, the car might be from any branch of the Blue Army, and they'd lose time confirming things. There were also two ground cars parked in shadowy spots around the corner, one of which, a tiny economy model, I myself had boosted several neighborhoods over after we'd come up with the plan. The other one was a battered sedan covered in box star graffiti, which Larendell had retrieved from somewhere. Actually, gaining the army vehicle and uniforms had been the very part of the operation I'd been most fretting, though this proved to be wasted energy. We dropped Hap Larendell and Brock Hockner off near a large checkpoint at the edge of town. All bright from floodlights and street lamps, it consisted of several dozen vehicles, five or six auto guns, and perhaps a hundred troops. Less than five minutes later, they buzzed directly over our heads as we drove away on the back roads, flying at an imperious and fully natural speed for honored members of the new regime. We found them waiting and smirking when we arrived at the alley in the same battered minibus, van really, that the team had rented when they'd first arrived on Barlow. Astonishingly, their cover as an off-world news team was still holding water with the guards at the smaller checkpoints, so we just stuck to the side streets on our return. Once together, Small then immediately had two of his people go out and plant the bus at a particular location, and then disable it, in a quickly fixable way, so it couldn't be stolen. One followed the other in the graffiti car, and they were both back again in half an hour. By now, the group had no reason to hide the tools of their profession from me. They each had an advanced headset comm unit, a stubby automatic rifle, and a pistol. There was also one long box, like a shoulder-mounted launcher, which they took turns carrying. Awkward because of its size, though quite light, it was loaded with four nasty-looking rocket-like things. Yet each team member was also a specialist, and carried unique equipment. Somewhere under the cold gear, Smith possessed some very impressive hacker-cracker devices. Hockner, big as he was, carried a large, heavy hard case on his back. This, I'd noticed when he was gearing up, was filled with folded tubes, cables, and a frame that had the appearance of a portable railgun. Once assembled, such a weapon could put a tapered polynium round through pretty much any target, regardless of its armor. It was very serious hardware, but really only useful for specific kinds of jobs. The ever-quiet Ellen Wozniak bore a sniper rifle, smooth and lethal-looking in its simplicity, which she carefully cleaned as we waited in the alley. Larendell, with no starship handy and when not driving a car, mostly just stood around looking nondescript, but somehow tough. Small, of course, was burdened with his wit and charm, easily the most lethal weapons of all. Seeing people attend to their stuff put me to mind that I hadn't yet cleaned the panther in the entire time I'd been on planet. Frankly, I didn't know how, but I wiped the individual pieces down anyway, as I took them out of the grimy flight bag one by one and then snapped it all together. I got some genuinely surprised looks which I'll admit felt gratifying, 
and Wozniak even picked up one of the ape rounds and whistled in admiration while examining it. Small caught my glance and motioned me to the end of the alley, away from the others. How's your low speak? Can you pass as a native? He then asked me something, likely the same thing, in the local lingo. I just shook my head. Okay then, he pursued. I'll take lead on this. Let me do the talking. Should you get asked any questions directly, keep the answers short. The rest of the team knows what to do. English is widely used in the army, but the accent here is distinctive, as I'm sure you've noticed. He nodded at my wrist comp. What's the word? Soon. I'll get a call, then we can move. We ought to wait at least a half hour after that, so it seems like we actually flew from somewhere. Probably, I agreed, but I'm told the story won't hold for long. I think we have to risk it. He thought about this, then shrugged. Okay, then, it's your call. But if it goes south, we may have to cut our way out, with or without your people. Understood. I started to turn back, but he caught my arm. I was surprised to see that penetrating look in his eye again. You know where it is, then? His voice was barely above a whisper, but heavy and very serious. I returned his gaze and considered my reply for a bit. I have an idea, yeah. And you were never going to make a move yourself. Actually getting it is only half the job. Without the key code, it's of no value at all. You knew this? I must have stared vacantly for a few seconds while it fell into place. Luckily, he misinterpreted my silence and waved his hand as if to erase his inquiries. We'll talk about it later, he pronounced with intentional volume, his charm back on like a fire hose. Another twenty minutes passed before the call finally came. It's been sent and acknowledged. Have fun. Mathers closed the connection and probably several proxies and network deadfalls as well. He might not have been a technical guy himself, but he seemed to know a bunch of them, and I didn't doubt he'd picked up some good habits from the association. We're good to go? Small asked, even as the others climbed aboard the car. Now or never, I confirmed, following suit. Larendell had had the machine idling, and we trundled out to the street even as we were all buckling in. The lane was devoid of people, save for a couple down the way standing in shadow and dressed much like me under my purloined uniform. Five seconds later, we were airborne, blowing trash and slush around the road in a messy circle as the car's powerful underfans provided lift. Three of us in the front seat and three in the back. Despite the short shelf life of our cover story, we made a slow arc over the eastern end of Finery so as to come at the secular headquarters from a different angle. The building had patrols out and about on all sides, along with several of those sweat-inducing autoguns on the roof. The people and robots alike tracked us as we flew by. Ooh, this is spooky... No one in the car responded, but they must have felt it too. That the place? Our driver asked, pointing down to the loading dock at the back. That's where they went in, so let's assume it's where they'll be brought out, if they're coming at all. 
Small adjusted the car's comm unit for a moment, keying a query. Circle around while I get his permission to land. They'll be nervous otherwise. He then spoke in low speak with someone from the building before giving Larendell the nod to go ahead. I thought the space back there was too tight to set down, but I guess it wasn't as bad as the alley because our pilot and driver dropped us in with quick efficiency and only a slight bump. There were several soldiers just coming out from a smaller door by that big loading bay. They took up positions, weapons in hand. Then an officer of some sort and somebody else not in uniform followed them out. Wozniak, Hockner, and Small jumped out the moment the car's wheels were on the ground. All three saluted smartly, right fists over their hearts. The officer from the building returned it, then stepped forward and asked something sharply. Small moved over to him, chattering in a peppery way. The faux newsman's actions were smooth and authoritative as his low speak must have been as well, because the officer, if anything, seemed less suspicious as the seconds went by. Our other two out there held their short-barreled weapons close and flanked the air car. In a bit, after a little back and forth, the officer nodded to the civilian guy, who, in turn, went back inside. Small stood by the officer, speaking quietly with the man. It looked good. But now we were at the most dangerous part, waiting. We had to keep up the illusion of authenticity while whatever was happening in the building happened. The two men outside spoke innocuously. I just sat there inside the air car with an uncomfortable helmet pulled low. The guards of the place studied us, pacing around the car and our own two guards. The tension was high and very tight, at least for me. I wasn't even breathing, I realized with a shock, and then had to suppress a gasp for air. It was awful. Awful. Outside, Small laughed at something the officer said, then offered his own little drollery in return. Finally, after an age and when my nerve had nearly given out, the small door opened again. Several more guards came out in advance of the civilian guy from before, but then two manacled individuals with hoods came next, followed by even more soldiers. We were quite outgunned should it come to a fight, but my attention was arrested by the prisoners, a man and a woman. Neither wore cold gear, but gray military jackets had been thrown over their shoulders. Soldiers held their arms and elbows, carefully guiding them down cement stairs to the ground. I got out of the car and opened the door on my side. What is it? Where are we going now? It was Carmi's voice, and she was more irritated than frightened, just the way a starship captain ought to sound under the circumstances. I had to stifle my grin, and it wasn't easy. The real guards held the prisoners' heads down as they entered and even helped buckle their harnesses once they were seated. I climbed back in beside Dell and shut the door. Hockner stepped up on the running board outside and latched his uniform's harness to an exterior lanyard, while Wozniak, on the other side of the car, did the same. 
We were now a prisoner transport, with special units riding exterior shotgun. It was a bit showy, no doubt, but this regime liked its spectacles. Small spoke with the officer in charge again and left the guy laughing as they saluted. He then returned to the car, his vidstar grin as charming as ever, and in a moment we were up and away. Would someone please tell me where we're going? Carmi demanded in a voice muffled by the blue hood. I went to remove Dell's hood, who was closest, but Small stopped me. Not yet. The air car was still inside of the building for a few more seconds, but after we entered a reverse of the arcing course from before, we were finally clear. Then I uncovered Dell. Leaning over while he blinked and adjusted his sight, I did the same for Carmi. What's going on here? she demanded then spotted Small leaning back over the front seat, his smile looking genuine to me. Then again, it always did, which is why it never did. Mr. Small? What? Good God! Ejok! Dell held more emotion on his thin face as I fiddled with his cuffs than I had yet seen him express. I wouldn't say he was perturbed exactly, but his haggard features spoke of a rough couple days. He needed a shave, too, which gave him an odd, grizzled prospector appearance that was in stark contrast to his strange but cultured accent. I didn't have a key to the metal cuffs. I don't know what I was trying to do there, so after a moment I stopped. Carmi stared open-mouthed at me. Gunnery, reporting for duty, ma'am. I couldn't keep a smile of my own away and perplexingly found myself tearing up. But, but how? It seems the new military structure is still lacking in structure, I explained, with a gesture to the cuffs as I looked at Small. We'll have to get them off later. A prisoner transport is supposed to have those keys already. Sorry, I said to my crewmates, then continued. I had some friends send out an emergency transfer order for the two off-world prisoners, but it took Mr. Small and his team to really give it legitimacy. We were counting on the Blues not yet having all their protocols in place and did our best to keep them guessing what super-secret branch of the new government we belonged to. They had no one to immediately call to confirm a transfer like this. A few minutes on the comm will reveal what happened, so we need to make some distance before then. You came down here for us? Is the ship safe? For the moment, yes, I assured her. Still docked, but they have their hands full. We can call Griselda in a bit. Right now, we have to keep moving. The alleyway we had left only 17 minutes before was now approaching. With another trashy dust devil, Hap Larendell landed us in the street. Those same derelicts, or identical ones, watched us as we all jumped out. Our two pretend revolutionaries outside the car had already unbuckled themselves and started stripping down to their plain off-world cold gear underneath. I did the same, getting an amused look from Carmi at the filthiness of my attire. We need to have a talk about your personal hygiene, Mr. DeSantos. And you need to lose those military jackets, Small injected. His light-heartedness was gone now replaced with a simple focus that frankly impressed me. He'd already displayed it as we hammered out the details of our hasty plan, and it was that, more than anything else, which had given me the confidence to green light it. 
It's well after Barlow midnight, and we want to be far from town by dawn. Our van is 17 blocks over, and there are still those checkpoints. They shrug the jackets off in the alley there, and in a few moments, we split into two teams, Small, Smith, Carmi, and I in the cramped little car, with Dell and the others in the paint-scrawled sedan. We drove off in opposite directions, leaving the military car behind. I really thought we were going to rot in that jail, or worse, Carmi stated quietly to no one and everyone. Then she looked up. You're not a reporter, are you, Mr. Small? Imagine that. Ejok seems to have known it all along, and here I thought we were being cagey. Why did you come to this world? That's my business, and it's still uncompleted. Griselda is the only way out of this system, and Ejok has implied that if we want passage on it, helping to liberate you folks was the way to ensure it. A round-trip ticket means you always had passage no matter what, but this stunt wins you points for sure. Good, because we're not free yet. Stop here, he said to Smith, who was behind the wheel. We pulled over in front of a large recycling dumpster behind a packaging facility that appeared to be up and running. Almost immediately, a dumpy woman stepped out from an open door and into the light of an exterior flood. She waved at us from the shipping platform to move away. It seemed prudent to comply, so Smith backed us up a bit until we were out of direct sight. Small pointed up the road. There was a checkpoint around that corner when we came in earlier last night. We got through okay, but that was then. If an alert about us hasn't gone out yet, it will soon. We have to skirt the intersection on foot from here. I took out my blue rag and tied it to my arm, and rifle in hand took up a position behind Carmi, who still wore the manacles. This'll keep regular folks from asking questions, I explained to them all. Good thinking, Small conceded, but it won't cow any soldiers. Well, we're trying to avoid them anyway. He nodded in agreement. Then he and Smith, who slung her automatic weapon and took up a spot next to Carmi, set off in pace with us. We did get looks from the civilians we passed, but no real interest beyond a few patriotic raised fists and calls of encouragement, which I responded to with a wave. We looped around the checkpoint entirely, though that meant tramping down alleys and over obscure pedestrian bridges for nearly an hour. My feet started hurting badly. Carmi was shivering, but never complained. Once past anyone we needed to impress, I stopped and indicated the shackle on the captain's wrists. Can we lose those now? Yes, that would be nice, Carmi agreed eagerly. Small gave a nod to Smith, who produced a small case of tools. I thought she would pick the mechanical locks on the cuffs, but instead she took out a tiny tube of some unmarked gray goo. She squeezed a dab on the manacle hinges for each wrist. The stuff foamed up with a plasticky sheen and a sharp bite to the sinuses. It only affects metal, she explained, as if sharing even that much information was painful and greatly resented. After less than a minute, she was able to break the cuffs open with her bare hands, and Carmi was free.
Thank you, she told the short woman, who just nodded and resumed her position as we started off once more. I hope the other guys didn't have to walk, Carmi mentioned as she stepped quickly to keep up the pace. Dell's leg was hurt in the riot on the station. He never got any treatment. She was shivering. I tried to give her my outer coat, but it was as dirty as the rest of me, and she declined with a grimace. I couldn't blame her, but I got insistent five minutes later when it started drizzling in a thin, intermittent freezing rain, and she eventually conceded. We still hadn't talked about what happened or how we'd all arrived at this point, but she was professional through and through. Curiosity could wait for safer moments than this one. Our little con had worked, but no one was ready to celebrate. We just continued on quickly and quietly through a cold, misty, tapering drizzle. The clouds overhead, reddish umber and fineries creeping dawn, shuffled by restlessly, ceaselessly, like animate things that had secret reasons for celerity and silence. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.